blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back, the few, the proud, the COVID-free. Um, we are engaged in a continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We started just before Christmas, took a break, and we are returning now to this great letter. So if you would be so kind as to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, and we'll read the next nine verses, and then come back and take a closer look. Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we said when we started this study of Romans um, well over a month ago that this letter is unique in the sense that it is one of the few that Paul wrote to a church that he had no direct link with. That most of the time when Paul was writing letters, he either knew the individual to whom he was writing, in the case of Timothy, for example, or he had a direct relationship or link with the church to which he was writing. Perhaps it was a church that he had established on one of his missionary journeys, like the church in Ephesus or the church in Philippi or the churches in Galatia. But this is unique in that Paul did not have a direct relationship with the church in Rome, and he had not founded the church in Rome. This church, we don't really know how it was founded. There is some speculation as to how it was founded, but it was one of the early Christian communities, and it was a mixture. It was a church that was not just uh, comprised of Jewish believers or Gentile believers. It was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles both of whom had come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, the most logical explanation for how this church was founded, we said, was probably on the day of Pentecost. We said that on that day, which was a great feast for the Jews, that people from all over the known world had gathered in Jerusalem. And among them, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, were visitors from Rome. So that when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles on that day, and Peter stood up and delivered that great sermon, 
in which 3,000 people were converted, we can presume that some of those people were these visitors from Rome. And it's important to note that they were visitors from Rome. They were not transplants to Jerusalem. In other words, they were not people who had moved from Rome to Jerusalem. These were people who had gone to Jerusalem for one purpose only, and that was for the festival. And so presumably when the festival was over, but having heard Peter preach that great sermon and having been converted, what did they do? They went back home and they took their faith with them. So it is logical to believe that perhaps the church in Rome had been established as a consequence of what had happened there on Pentecost. But the important point for us to note is that Paul did not establish this church. And yet he makes it very clear here in this introduction that he had a yearning, he had a genuine desire to come to this church, to establish a relationship with it, and he wanted to do that, he says, for two reasons. One, so that he could impart a spiritual gift to them, or rather, two, that they might be mutually encouraged. I think this gives us some insight into the character of the Apostle Paul. I've said this before, those of you who've studied the book of Acts with me, Paul was a strategist. He took seriously his apostolic calling to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You'll recall that that was the calling that Jesus had laid upon the twelve. His last words to them prior to his ascension were, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That was the apostolic call. And that was the same call that was laid upon the Apostle Paul at a later date, as Paul describes himself, as one born out of time. But it was the call that was laid upon all of the apostles, and Paul took that seriously. His job was to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all men, not just a select few, not just the Jews, but all men. But Paul wanted to know, how do you get the gospel out to as many people as quickly as possible? And so he developed a strategy. And if you study the book of Acts with me, you notice that that strategy centered on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. Paul really began to focus on the great cities. That's why churches were established in places like Philippi and Ephesus. It's because those were major cities of the ancient world. Paul knew that if a gospel presence could be established in those places where everything came and went, commerce and, and, and money and travelers and all of those sorts of things. If you could establish a Christian presence in that kind of a great metropolitan center, it wouldn't be long before the gospel itself was likewise going out to the ends of the earth. And so Paul was very strategic. I like to say that there are two types of people in the world. There are dreamers and there are doers. And there's a difference between them. You know the dreamers. They're the ones who dream dreams and have visions, and they're very creative, and they're, they're exciting to be around. They make life worth living. But they can be, at times, rather frustrating because they're very creative, but they're sometimes not very practical. The way one person described it is this. He said, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good to anyone. So those, those are the dreamers. Now, Contrast the dreamers with the doers. Those are the doers. Those are the ones that are sort of the get-her-done kind of people. They see a task that's before them, and they dive right in to get it done. But they're the kind of people that, if you think about it, have a tendency to get down into the weeds. 
get bogged down in minutia. They can't see the forest for the trees. You know the kind of person? I, I suppose it's a difference between somebody who's an engineer and somebody who is an architect. There is a difference between the two. They have different gifts. In the church, we like to describe them in terms of Marys and Marthas. You know who the Marys are. They're the ones that sit at the Lord's feet and they drink it all in and they like to think about things and they're, they're very prayerful and all of that. But when it comes to actually getting the work done, well, the Marys aren't much help sometimes. Contrast them with the Marthas. We're always in the kitchen getting all of the work done, but of course, sometimes miss the more important spiritual matters in life. Jesus criticized Martha for that. He said, Martha, Martha, you are concerned with many things, but only one thing is needful. Mary has chosen the better way. Now, I like to point out that the Lord never said that Mary had chosen the only way or that Martha had chosen a bad way. He simply was saying that when it comes to spiritual or secular matters, and if you have to make a choice, well, then choose the spiritual matters. It's better to err on that side than it is on the secular matters. But let's be honest, and Jesus would have been the first to admit this, we need Marthas. If there are no Marthas in the church, none of the works of mercy and compassion get done. The hungry don't get fed. The naked don't get clothed. The flowers on the altar don't get done if there are no Marthas in the church. And by the way, Jesus told people to be active. He didn't say that we were supposed to sit around and contemplate our navels for the rest of eternity. No, he told the disciples to go out into all the world. So the church needs Marthas and it needs Marys. It needs dreamers and it needs doers. But if you're going to be a leader, and not everybody's called to leadership. But if you're going to be a leader, what the church needs is dreamers who do. Somebody who's uniquely gifted with both of those things. Somebody who is visionary, who can dream dreams, who can see things as they are meant to be, but then has the wisdom to begin to put in place those programs or whatever it may be in order to achieve that vision. So it's not just a pie in the sky dream. So dreamers who do, that's what the apostle Paul was. And that's what made him such an extraordinary leader. He was a dreamer. He was a visionary. He had a vision for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but at the same time, he was a doer and he developed a strategy for getting the job done. And that's really what this epistle to the Romans, to some degree, is all about. It is Paul wanting to reach out to a church that he recognizes has great potential. It was strategically located. It's no exaggeration to say that of all the cities in the ancient world, now, of course, to the Jews, the most important city in the world was Jerusalem. But from a secular point of view, there was no place that was more important than Rome. We talked about the strategic location of Rome. Back before Christmas, we said that the old expression is all roads lead to Rome, and that was absolutely true. It was the hub of a great wheel from which roads extended out into every part of the vast Roman Empire. 
So if you could establish a Christian presence in Ephesus and Philippi, yes, the gospel would be coming and going. But if you can establish a strong Christian presence in Rome, well, then the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. And so that's what Paul is attempting to do here. He did not establish this church, but he wanted to have a relationship with this church because he recognized its value in terms of reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we talked a little bit about this introduction. We said that the epistle to the Romans begins like many letters in the ancient world. But one of the things that Paul does very early on is he gives thanks for this church. He notes what they are famous for, and they are famous. He says that they are renowned. And this is what he says. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing you, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want to come to you, not only because of where you're located, but because you are a church that has a reputation. And it's a reputation worth having. Everybody has a reputation. And when you come to the end of your days, you're going to have a reputation for one thing or another. The only question is, is yours a reputation that's worth having? You'll recall that just before the break, I gave you some homework. And the job was for you to go home and ask yourself, what is our reputation? At St. Philip's Church, what is our reputation in this community? What are we known for? I'm not, I didn't ask the question, what do we want to be known for? The question is, if you were to go up and ask the average person on the street, maybe somebody who's not necessarily a member of the congregation, St. Philip's Church, what's your impression of St. Philip's Church? What would that impression be? What would our reputation be out there in the world? Now, some of you might say it's a very good reputation. Some might say it's not a particularly good reputation. But regardless of whether it's a good one or a not so good one, what we want to strive for is a reputation that is pleasing to the Lord. And that's what this church in Rome apparently had. In spite of the fact that it had not been established by the Apostle Paul, and there's no indication that was established necessarily by the Apostle Peter. Peter certainly had a connection with this church, especially late in his life. There are indications that he died there, a martyr in Rome. But most of the evidence that we have indicates that neither Paul nor Peter, the great apostle to the Jews, nor the great apostle to the Gentiles, established this church in Rome. It was established probably by normal people who had just heard the gospel and took that gospel back home with them, pedestrians, if you will. And nevertheless, this was a church that Paul said was known throughout the world and known for what? It's faith. It was a church that was known for its faith. That's a reputation worth having. Now, when we talk about faith, what does that mean? What exactly is faith? I think that there are a great many misunderstandings as to what faith really is. 
The Bible has a very specific understanding of what faith is. The world has perhaps a slightly different understanding of what faith is. And if Paul is talking about their faith, which is a Christian faith, we need to be very specific in terms of our understanding as to what that is. So let's just keep your finger there in Romans for a moment and turn to the right in your Bible to Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews, of course, is a great letter, and a large portion of it is dedicated to this subject of faith. This entire 11th chapter, as a matter of fact. And this is what the author of Hebrews says about faith. We'll start at verse 1 and read through verse 6. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith, we can clearly see, is an essential element in those who are pleasing to God. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And John 3.16, that most famous passage perhaps in the entire New Testament, deals with the subject of faith. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, translate, has faith in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So faith is an essential element in the Christian life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But what exactly is Christian faith? Well, it's important to understand what Christian faith is not. Christian faith is not, first of all, a subjective feeling. We had a, a speaker here about two years ago, and he used a wonderful expression. Every now and then he said, I get a quiver in my liver. That is not faith. That may be the Holy Spirit operating in your life to prompt you to do something, but that's not faith. Faith is not just some sort of subjective feeling. I have faith that it's true. Why? Well, I just, I just feel it in my bones. That is not biblical faith. Nor is biblical faith credulity, which is what many people think faith is today. Faith is what you have when you don't have evidence. It is, it is hope against hope. It's, it's earnestly believing in something because you cannot bear the thought of it not being true. Credulity. Faith is hope against hope. That's what many people in the world say today. Faith is what you have if you're religious because you don't have proof. But that's not the biblical understanding of faith. That may be a worldly understanding of faith, but that's not what the Bible means by faith. So faith is not a subjective feeling. It's not credulity, nor is it optimism. PMA, positive mental attitude. That's what Norman Vincent Peale defined faith as. It's just, just believe. 
He said, every morning, get up, look in the mirror, and say to yourself, I believe. Believe what? Just believe. That's what many people think faith is. But that's not the biblical understanding of faith at all. The Greek word, and you've heard me talk about this before, that is translated as faith in the New Testament is the Greek word pistis. And it literally means to rely on something, to have confidence in something, to trust in something. And that trust is always based upon evidence. I mean, you see this most clearly, I think, in the resurrection accounts. Now, you think about it. We, we talk about doubting Thomas. I've always thought that poor Thomas gets a bad rap. All of the disciples doubted. None of them believed. You'll recall that when Mary Magdalene was sent back to the house to find the disciples because the women had gone to the tomb early in the day, they found the tomb empty. She gets back there, knocks on the door, and she says to them, the Lord is not there. The tomb is empty. Perhaps a resurrection has occurred. And Peter and the others did not say, oh, well, yeah, Mary, you're probably right about that. Hallelujah. No, they were skeptical, we're told. In fact, Peter and John raced each other to the tomb. Peter arrived after John. John got there first. He was younger. Peter was a little bit overweight. By the time he got there, he was sort of panting there at the entrance. But, you know, Peter, always impetuous, pushes John out of the way, and he goes in, and he looks around, and what does he see? Well, he sees something. The tomb was not quite empty. What he sees was the grave clothes. They were still there, and they were intact, perfectly wrapped, as though the body had just disappeared, and the grave clothes, perfectly wrapped, like a mummy, had just fallen flat. And we're told that he saw, he saw. It's really interesting. There are a number of different words in Greek for saw. One was blepo. It means to observe. One is theoreo, from which we get our word theorize. And one is areo. It is to see with understanding. All three words, incidentally, are used in those resurrection accounts. Peter gets there, he goes in, and he sees that the tomb is empty. Blepo. He observed that. But then it says, he saw again, and this time it's theoreo. He's trying to, to understand what has happened here. All right, I can see that the, the, the body's not here. I can see the grave clothes. Then he begins to see and he begins to understand tried to understand what in the world has happened here, begins to theorize. And then it says, John finally works up enough courage and he follows Peter in and he sees, and the word is areo, he understands. And he believes he has faith, but it's on the basis of what? On the basis of the evidence. That is always the case with Christian faith. Ours is an historic religion. It is not just based upon individual feelings. It is based upon objective reality. Now, if you have that kind of faith, it should make a difference in the way you live your life. And the best analogy I can give you is the analogy of marriage. This kind of faith, this kind of trust which then results in a different way of living, is very evident in a relationship. 
In order to have a successful relationship, a successful marriage, there are three things that are required. First of all, you have to have knowledge. That's what we call the courtship period. You get to know each other. Somebody introduces you, but you don't know each other. You don't know whether or not you're compatible. You don't know whether or not you're going to enjoy each other's company. And so you spend some time together getting to know each other. A courtship. Then there is this point where this knowledge translates into something else. Something that is a movement of the heart. We call it falling in love. But while those first two parts are important to a relationship, none of them do a marriage make. In order for there to be a marriage, you not only need to know the person, you not only need to have a love for the person, you also have to what? Commit to the person. That's the point of the marriage ceremony. That's the point of getting married. It's one of the things that many young people today are reluctant to do. They'll talk about the first part getting to know each other. Sometimes the courtship lasts for a decade. I see that in many of the weddings that we do. It's a, you know, it used to be a short courtship. I recommend short courtships, by the way. But a lot of times they want to live together. It's sort of like, you know, driving the car around the block a few times and kicking the tires to see if we're really going to, you know, work out together. You have to ask yourself, you've been together for 10 years. What makes you think it's not going to, how much longer do you have to be together before it works out? But there is that courtship period, there is that falling in love period, but there has to come a point where you commit to each other. You commit for, to each other, what? In times of prosperity and in times of adversity. From this day forward until death we do part. That's what biblical faith really is. It's based upon evidence. It's based upon trust. We trust God because God has proven himself to be trustworthy. We've come to know him, that he can be counted on. And now, having come to realize that we can count on him, we begin to fall in love with him. We begin to have a heart for God. But there comes a point where we have to commit ourselves to God. We cannot remain in this this state of limbo forever. There comes a point where you have to dedicate yourself to the service of the Lord. That is why Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, that people may come to know Jesus Christ. But then he says what? Make disciples of all men. Discipleship is about commitment. And that's what biblical faith is. So this is a church that trusts the Lord that trust is based upon God's trustworthiness. They've come to know him. They've come to know that they can trust him. They've fallen in love with him. And what's more, this is a church that is absolutely dedicated to the Lord. It is that kind of faith. And above all, Paul says, it is faith in Jesus Christ. You can have faith in many things. You can have faith in your spouse. But biblical faith, Christian faith, is always faith, absolute trust and commitment in Jesus Christ. And that's what this church is known for. And because it's known for this, for its absolute commitment to the Lord, Paul wants to establish a relationship with it. 
Because as he says, he wants the gospel, the message of salvation to go out to the ends of the earth. And these Roman Christians are dedicated to the same task. Now, it is interesting here, the way Paul puts it. Look at verse 14. He said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What Paul is saying is that he knows that they have a faith in Jesus Christ. He knows that they share a common commitment to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is a reputation worth having. It's a reputation we should have, that kind of commitment. But he says we need to be committed to it because this is a message that is for all people. Now, it's hard for us to understand how revolutionary that would have been in the first century, particularly among the Jews. This is a revolutionary idea that the message of Jesus Christ is not for a select few. Keep your finger there in Romans for just a second. It just occurred to me and turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, which immediately precedes this book of Romans. Go back to Acts chapter one. And I want you to, I want to show you something. I want you to notice something. It's Acts chapter one. Now, you know, Acts is sort of a bridge book. Jesus by this point has been resurrected. The first chapter of Acts is describing that period, about 40 days between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension. Now, you could just imagine the kind of questions that filled the minds of Peter and Andrew, James and John and all the rest in the wake of the resurrection. I mean, Jesus had gone, to borrow a phrase from Gene Roddenberry, where no man had gone before. And he'd come back to tell the tale. And so they they had all kinds of questions for Jesus. I want you to notice how the book of Acts begins, because there's something very insightful here. In my first book, O Theophilus, that's how we know that the book of Acts and the book of Luke go together. It's because both of these books are addressed to the same individual, Theophilus. It's a word that means beloved of God. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dwelt with all, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is that bridge period, that bridge period. Let's go on. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that's the part that I want you to notice. What's the first question they have for Jesus following the resurrection? And there there are all kinds of questions they could have asked, but the first question they asked is, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why do they ask that question? Because in the minds of the apostles, all of whom were Jews, that's what the Messiah had come to do. The Messiah had come to drive out the enemy, and in this particular instance, that would be the Romans, 
and to reestablish the glory days of David and Solomon. Make Israel great among the princes of the earth. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's going to be an ethnically restricted kingdom. That's what they think. Which is why the rest of the book of Acts is so important. Because the majority of the book of Acts focuses on taking the gospel where? To the Gentiles. This is not an ethnically restricted kingdom. This is not just for a few. But that's what the Jews thought. So you go back now to Romans. And you can begin to understand why when Paul says that this is a message for the whole world, how revolutionary that would have been. Now, there are echoes of this in the Old Testament. It's not to say that this was some sort of novel thing that Jesus just dreams up in the wake of the resurrection. Not at all. There were many passages in the Old Testament that said that the Jews had been chosen that they might be a light to enlighten the Gentiles. That's what the Messiah was coming to be, to be a light to enlighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of the people of Israel. But of course, the Jews believed that any Gentile could become a believer so long as they first became a Jew, with all that that entailed. But what Paul is going to go on to explain here in Romans is that that is not how the gospel is received. The gospel, he says, is a message for all people, and it is received by faith. Why is it for all people? Two reasons. One, because all people need it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And here's the second reason why the gospel is for every person. It's because God loves the whole world. He doesn't just love the Jews. He loves Gentiles as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him, all that believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So this is a message for all people because God loves all people. And it is a message for all people because all people desperately need it, for all have sinned. Now, I just want to pause here. This may be very elementary. Some of you might say, well, we know all of this. But I think it's important because the church talks a great deal about sin. But do we really understand what sin is? Sin is not the same thing as a crime. A crime is something you are guilty of if you have broken the law of man. Sin is what you are guilty of when you have broken the law of God. So when you run through a traffic light, that is a crime, but it's not necessarily a sin. But when you violate the laws of God, that is a sin. So there's a difference between the two. So the wages of sin, violating God's law, that is death. Violating the laws of men, perhaps a citation and a fee. So we need to understand what sin really is. The most basic definition is just that. It is a trespass against the law of God. That's one of the reasons why we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It's because we have trespassed. When we sin, we have trespassed into God's territory. 
We have broken his law. But while that is the most basic definition, what we really need to understand is why we sin. And for that, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And to Genesis chapter 3 is all about the fall of mankind. And you know that what happens there in Genesis chapter 3 is that God establishes some parameters for the man and the woman. He places them in this beautiful protective. And I want to say something about these opening chapters of Genesis. This is filled with very poetic language. It's describing real events, but it's not describing them in a blow-by-blow, clunky, historical way. These are big, huge themes in these opening chapters of Genesis. So what is Genesis 1 through 3 really teaching us? It's teaching us, number one, that God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is not in a constant state. It has not always been there. It is not eternal. There was a moment when there was nothing, and there was a moment when there was something, and that's because God spoke and said, let there be. God creates everything that is. Now, whether he used some long process of evolution or whether he did it instantaneously, the author of Genesis, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, does not care. We care, but he doesn't care. I don't think that the author of Genesis is telling us how long it took God to create or how God created. The author of Genesis is not interested in mechanism. He's interested in agency. So however God did it, the point of Genesis is that God did it. And that the pinnacle of his creative activity is man made in his image, a reflection of his glory and placed in the world to be his regent over creation to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. And what happens? Man fails in that task. Man fails in that task. And why does he fail in the task? Not because he ate of the fruit of the tree. It's because of why he ate of the fruit of the tree. When the serpent appeared to the woman, he said to her, look at that fruit. Isn't it lovely? God's given you all this fruit, but, but that one you can't have. And it's interesting how the woman responds. She says, that's right. God has said that if we eat of the fruit of that tree, we shall die, which means she understood the rules. She understood the parameters. But it's when the serpent said, ah, but God knows you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be what? Like him. That's the sin of Eden, folks. The sin of Eden is a desire to be like God. Now, you might say to yourself, I have no desire to be like God. Oh, yes, you do. And so do I. Because to be like God means to be in charge. It means to be the master of your own fate. It means to be the captain of your own destiny. The illustration I always use is like when you're in a hurry to get someplace. You're in a hurry to get someplace and you get caught behind a carriage. <laughs> and you are so frustrated. You're, you're going to be late for the rector's Bible study. I, I got to get there and there's not going to be a parking space when I get there. And so you're really anxious to get there. And all of a sudden, you're coming up to that light. And that stale green light suddenly turns yellow. Now, you know that according to the law, when you see a yellow light, that means that you are supposed, you're supposed to put your foot on the pedal. Which pedal? The brake pedal. But what do we do? 
Well, if you're like me, you hit the gas pedal. And you go right through that yellow light, which is now turned red, and all of a sudden you see a third light. It's a blue light in your rear view mirror. And you get pulled over and you are mad as a wet hen. You're so angry. Why? Did you violate the law? Yes. But you had an agenda. You needed to get somewhere. Now, picture it this way. You're not in a hurry to get anywhere. You're reluctant to go where you're going, but you got to go. It's the dentist. Ugh. And so you're just taking your sweet time, and all of a sudden, you see the light up ahead turn yellow, and you just come to a nice, slow, rolling stop. And all of a sudden, zoom, right next to you, somebody goes right through. And what's the first words out of your mouth? Where is a cop when you need one? See, it's not all right for them to go speeding through the light, but it's okay for you to go speeding through the light. Why? Because you want to be the master of your own fate, the captain of your own destiny. And that little scenario is played out over and over again in our lives, not just in small things, but in enormous things. Or we want to run our children's lives. It's one of the things that I've had to learn. I can't write their story, but we try. We want to run their lives, and we want to run everybody else's lives, and we want to be in charge of our own lives. And that's the real sin of Eden, because there's only one, you see, who is truly sovereign. And when we say, I want to be in charge, what we are doing is we are trespassing on God's territory. We are, in essence, kicking God off the throne and placing ourselves on it. And that is the root of all sin. And the book of Genesis said that what it does is that it is like a cancer that invades the person and it becomes a disease that corrupts everything. You know, it's interesting when you think about John the Baptist and he saw Jesus. John the Baptist was a wonderful person. Jesus said he was the greatest of all men ever born of women. John was wonderful for a couple of reasons. One reason is because he was a great diagnostician. In order to be a really good and effective doctor, you've got to be able to do two things. You've got to be able to diagnose the problem. You've got to be able to prescribe a cure. John did both of those things. He was out there in the wilderness calling people to repent. Why? Because they had sinned. They had violated God's laws. They were trying to be the masters of their own fate. He was calling them back. That was their problem. But then he said, behold, this is the prescription, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what is interesting is that in the Bible, sin is singular. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Book of Common Prayer translated it sins. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not our individual sins. It's sin with a capital S. It's like having a disease and all of those other little sins, those things that we find mentioned in the Ten Commandments, the stealing, the adultery, the lying, the coveting, all of those things, those things are the symptoms of the disease. And the disease is what we all have. And it's the disease that must be cured or we die. For the wages of sin 
is death. So that's why Paul is eager to establish a relationship with these Roman Christians. It's because their faith in Jesus Christ is renowned. Their commitment to Jesus Christ is known throughout the world. God loves the whole world. Paul wants to see the gospel get out to as many people as quickly as possible because all are perishing because of their sin. And so he's eager to establish this relationship with the church in Rome. And when we say that the consequences of sin are death, it's important that we understand what that really is. We always think in terms of physical death, but it's much more serious than that. When the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of the death of a person in three ways. Three ways. We die three ways. And the physical death is the least of our problems. Now, you might not think so in the midst of a pandemic, but it is actually the least of our problems. If you go back to Genesis, we're told that on the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. But did they? Well, they didn't die physically. They went on to have children, as a matter of fact, Cain and Abel and so forth. They didn't, they didn't die on that day, but they died spiritually and they died morally. And later they died physically. So how did they die spiritually? They died in terms of their communion with God. It's wonderful the way that the Bible depicts the intimate fellowship and communion that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, had with God. We're told that God came walking with them in the cool of the day. Now, anybody that's ever lived in Charleston in August knows how wonderful that picture is. There's an old Baptist hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear as I tarry there, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That's the picture of communion and fellowship and intimacy. But after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are open, what's the first thing they do? They hide. So that God comes searching for them and crying out, Adam, where are you? They were hiding. The relationship was broken. That's the first thing sin does. It will break your relationship with God. It's one of the reasons why we feel like cosmic orphans. Because our fellowship with our creator has been severed. And we not only die spiritually in terms of our relationship, we die morally. What's the first thing God says to Adam? What is it that you have done? Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat of? The woman thou gavest me. He blames her. He doesn't want to take responsibility for his own actions. He wants to shift the blame to somebody else. What does the woman do? What is it that you've done? The serpent. And really, if you think about it, and I've said this before, the real tragedy of what Adam says is that he doesn't even blame Eve. He actually blames God. He says, the woman, you gave me. If you'd never given her to me, this would have never happened. So you see, what happens is, the relationship with God is broken. Their moral reasoning is broken. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions. It's the blame game, which we've been playing ever since. And the final thing that happens is that we die physically. And that's what makes physical death so tragic. What makes physical death so tragic is that if you die apart from God, you perish for eternity. But what Paul says is that there is some good news. 
That's what the gospel is all about. There is good news for those who have sinned. There is a way to be right with God again, a righteousness that he says comes by faith. And that's what the rest of this book is really all about, or this chapter in particular. Paul is going to talk about getting right with God. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Greek word there is evangelion, from the word from which we get evangelist or evangelical. It means glad tidings, good news. When the angels appeared to the shepherds out there at the time of the Lord's birth, they said, we bring you glad tidings. The Greek word there is gospel. We bring you gospel, glad tidings, good news. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the good news, the glad tidings, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, there is a way for us to reestablish the relationship with God. There is a way for us to undo everything that happened in Eden. And that is the gospel. This is the theme of the Epistle to the Romans, getting right with God. Getting right with God. Now I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit and talk a little bit about the righteousness of God. Look at verse 18. We'll come back to this next week, but let's just skip ahead a little bit and look at this whole theme of the righteousness of God. He says, for the wrath of God, and by the way, those two terms are intrinsically linked. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God are connected. You cannot separate them. Now, I know we don't mind hearing about the righteousness of God, but many people think that the notion of the wrath of God is an archaic idea. But Paul connects them. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original text, and there were no verse numbers in the original text. So this whole idea of the righteousness or the righteous shall live by faith flows immediately into four. Four is a transitional word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the problem. Paul wants us to understand that there has to be a righteousness that comes from above because there is no righteousness left on earth. And it's not because men and women are ignorant of the truth. It's because, he says what? They suppress the truth. Now, that term wrath is an important term. When we think of somebody who is wrathful, what do you think of? We generally think of somebody who sort of is just always angry. 
short-tempered. He's got a short wick. He, he flies off the handle. He's not in control of his emotions. That's what we think of a wrathful person. And that's what many people think of when they think of God. They think of God as the wrathful God. That's the God of the Old Testament, they say. That God of judgment who is going to bring down plagues upon the Egyptians. That, that's, that's the God that we think of, a wrathful God. But that implies that somehow God is not in control. And that, just like the biblical word faith is something different than the world understands it to be, so this term wrath is very different from the way the world understands it. You need to understand that when the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, it's not talking about anger in the sense of human anger. It is an aspect, an extension of God's holiness. His wrath is an extension of his holiness. So in order to understand the salvation of which Paul speaks, the righteousness of which Paul speaks, you have to understand the wrath of God, and that means you need to understand God's character, God's nature, the holiness of God. Now, we say he is the God whose property is always to what? Have mercy, and that is true. He is merciful, but he is also righteous. In fact, of all the adjectives that are used in the New Testament to describe God, which one do you think is used more than any other? It's not love. It's not mercy. The adjective that is used more than any other in the Bible to describe God is the adjective holy. He is the holy one. In the Old Testament, when somebody had a vision of God and all of his majesty, what did he see? Angels and archangels, seraphs, cherubim, falling down before the throne and saying what? Holy, holy, holy. That is who God is. God is the holy one. He is merciful and he is loving, but that mercy and that love is an extension of his holiness and so is his wrath. So we need to back up for a minute and we need to say that God, even before he's loving, even before he's merciful, he is holy. He is the holy one. Now, what does it mean to say that God is the holy one? Well, it means a number of things. First of all, it means that God is not like us. He's H-O-L-Y, but he's also W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is wholly other. I think when we think of God and we think of human beings, we have this sort of picture of a sliding scale. And I've used this before uh, in classes on confirmation. But when we think of God and his righteousness and his holiness, we have a tendency to think in terms of behavior. So you've got way down here on the bottom of the scale, you've got zero. And then right up here at the top is 100%. And God is right up there, 100% holy, and everybody else falls somewhere along the line between zero and 100. Nobody, of course, has ever reached 100. But down there toward the bottom, you've got the real villains of history. You know, you know down there, maybe 10%. We're not, we're not going to say that they're completely zero, you know, because the devil would have to be down there. But we'll say, you know, somebody like Stalin or, or Hitler or Genghis Khan, they're down there at 10 or 15 or 20% goodness. 
Maybe they picked up a bird that fell out of a nest one time and put it up there. It's something nice, you know, helped an old lady across the street, whatever it is. But, but they're not entirely bad, but they're certainly not good. And, and, and then you sort of move up the scale and you get to the 50% mark. And, and, and there's, a, there's a large swath of people to 50%. You know, they're sort of half good, half good, half light, half dark, or whatever it is. And then, and then you get a little bit up above that to the 60% mark is where we hope most of us are because, you know, God grades on the curve anyway. So we're hoping that we're at about 60% or maybe 70% or something like that. And then you go even further up the scale and you get to about 80%, 85%. Now that's, that's people like, you know, Billy Graham and, and Mother Teresa. And I always say 90, 95%, you know, that's the clergy of St. Phillips. And then, and then and you, eventually you get to the very top and you've got God. And that's the way we picture it. And that is not what it's like at all. God is not even on the scale. He is wholly other. He is completely different. He is, the way the ancients used to put it, wholly other. Wholly other. He's nothing like us. We're creatures. The best you and I can say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. God simply says, I am. He's in a wholly different category. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. We can't say that. God is in a completely different category, wholly other. And an aspect of that holy otherness is his purity. He is pure. He is righteous. And he cannot abide by anything that is contrary to his character. That is why sin is such a serious matter. And that's why I've sometimes described God's wrath, not in terms of anger, a loss of control, but in terms of an allergic reaction. You know, if somebody is allergic to somebody, allergic to, to shellfish, for example, or allergic to eggs, they can't help that. If they eat shellfish, what's going to happen? They're going to react, and it can be a violent reaction. Our second son, when he was young, was allergic to eggs. He, he could not tolerate them. You even placed eggs on his lips, and he broke out in hives. We tried everything, egg beaters, everything. It made no difference. He just had a violent reaction to it. That's God's character when it comes to sin. When it comes to that which is contrary to his character, to his nature, he is just, he reacts against it. It is contrary to who he is. And that is why sin is such a serious matter. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying the wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what's the good news? The good news is that in spite of all of this unrighteousness of men, their unrighteousness in which they suppress the truth, there has come a righteousness from God, which is by faith. 
which is by trust, which is by confidence, which comes from God. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. We're going to take a look at this wrath of God against all of the wickedness of men who suppress the truth. It's not a question of people being ignorant of the truth. That's very important here. It's not a matter of ignorance. Paul makes it very clear they know that there is a God. Paul has no sympathy whatsoever for atheists. He might have some sympathy for agnostics who are a little confused as to what type of God exists. We see that in the book of Acts when he goes to Athens and he encounters those who are worshiping an unknown God. He has compassion for that because they're living in ignorance. But he says there is no excuse for those who deny the existence of God because all they are doing is suppressing the truth for the proof of God's evidence or evidence or proof of God's existence is written across all of creation. So we'll begin to unpack that. So that's what this book is all about. You begin to see huge themes. A great God, a holy God who is wholly other. And his wrath being revealed against a sinful, fallen humanity that has kicked God off the throne and wants to be masters of their own fate, captains of their own destiny. And God could very easily consume them. But because he loves the world in spite of its wickedness, in spite of its unrighteousness, he sends a message of good news. A righteousness, a right relationship with God that comes not by virtue of our efforts, but purely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's a message, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. And Paul wants to see it get out to as many people as quickly as possible. And so should we. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this introduction to the epistle to the Romans. These are enormous themes, and we already begin to get a taste of why this letter is so profound, this great letter. Paul did indeed have a message that he wanted to impart to these Roman Christians. He had a message of spiritual wisdom, and it's one that we need to hear. What Paul does is he helps us to understand our world, why our world is the way that it is, why we are the way that we are, why there is so much confusion, so much anger, so much frustration, so much fear. But he also goes on to tell us that there is good news. There is a way for us to be brought back into fellowship with God. There is a new Adam who has come to undo what the first Adam did, to set this broken and fallen world to rights. God, grant us the grace to receive this message, and like Paul, have a burning desire to see that it is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.